0: And so the whole gospel is preached in one Greek word. You want to follow along? John chapter 19 is where we're going to be. Uh, But before we dig into that, I want to give you some background because the moment we're talking about tonight is the moment that everything's been leading to. Scripture has been pointing to this moment since Genesis chapter 3. So for thousands of years of human history, God has been trying to get our attention so that we would not miss the moment that is before us tonight. So I don't really have a big long story to share other than I remember one time I was driving as a kid. No, I wasn't driving. I was riding in the passenger seat as a child. We were driving, and this gigantic, well, what seemed like a gigantic bird um, came and went right up against the windshield as it was swooping down. And I remember ducking my head, thinking that this this bird was going to come crashing through the windshield, right? And then when I looked up, You know, we were okay. I feel like what we're talking about in scripture tonight is kind of like that moment in that it is really in your face if you're looking for it. You can't miss it. It is swooping down, and the wingspan is covering the whole windshield. And so that's what we're discussing the moment that everything has been leading to. Now, starting all the way back in Genesis chapter three, this is the moment after. Adam and Eve have failed God. They've gone against his one thing. He's told them, you can eat of all of the fruit in the garden, except from this one single tree. Do not eat from the fruit of the tree, or the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve is deceived while Adam is right there. And she eats of it. And then Adam eats following that. He doesn't protect her. He doesn't help her as she's being deceived, but he's right there. And Adam and Eve have failed. And God makes Eve a promise. In Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent who deceived Eve. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so God is speaking to the serpent, the one who deceived Eve. The word for serpent in Hebrew is nachash, meaning the shining one. So that sounds like someone else we know from Scripture, Lucifer. Has deceived Eve, and God says to him, from the seed of Eve is going to come someone who's going to crush your head. In the process, you will bruise his heel. So he's even telling the serpent, he's telling Nachash that you're gonna think you've gotten some sort of victory, but in that moment, your head is gonna be crushed by the seed of woman. Someone who's born from a woman. That moment we've been waiting for for a long time. Now, from that moment, a long time goes by. A flood happens. God wipes out the world except for Noah and his family because they're the only righteous ones. And we see after the flood, God tells the people to be fruitful and multiply, to go spread out. And they refuse God's direction. They all stay together and they build the Tower of Babel. And God separates the nations. And as he separates the nations and confuses their language and spreads people out, he hands them over to their own desires. And as a generation or two goes by, God picks out one man, Abraham. And he tells Abraham that it's through him that all the nations will be blessed. That that seed from Eve is now going to come through Abraham. And the picture gets narrowed a little bit. He tells Abraham, it's through you that all the nations are going to be blessed. And then in Genesis 22, we see a picture of what that's going to look like. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, is told by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And Abraham just does what God says. Now, even though Isaac is the one that God promised him would be the one that he would build a nation through, that all the peoples in the earth would be blessed through the nation that was built from Isaac, He tells Isaac to sacrifice, or he tells God to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham doesn't question him. He just goes on the journey. And he takes Isaac up the ridge of Mount Moriah to the peak. On the way, Isaac says, where's the lamb? And Abraham says to him, God will provide one. As they get to the peak of Mount Moriah, he ties up Isaac after building an altar and puts him on it. And he gets ready to sacrifice Isaac as God had commanded him. And as he's going down to strike Isaac with the knife, God stops him. The angel of the Lord comes and stops him and says, don't touch the boy. And he tells Abraham that his faith has been seen and tested. And in that moment, Abraham looks over and he sees a ram in a thicket, and they sacrifice the ram for God instead of Isaac on the peak of Mount Moriah. And Abraham names that place God will provide. Now, interestingly, he doesn't name that place God has provided, he names that place God will provide because he's still looking for the lamb. Notice it was a ram that showed up, not a lamb. Abraham was able to provide a sacrifice for God, but not the sacrifice that Isaac asked for. Where's the lamb? Well, that place is named God Will Provide. Turns out that the peak of Mount Moriah happens to be just north of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Something else is just north of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Golgotha, the place where Jesus is crucified. But years later, about a thousand years BC, David is king of Israel. And David writes a psalm. He writes a psalm, Psalm 22. And now nothing in David's life actually represents the events that are recorded in Psalm 22. It's as if David's bloodline is calling out to him. For a thousand years in the future. And he gets a glimpse of what his lineage means because David is now the promised one from the line of Abraham, from the line of Judah, that is now promised for the Messiah to be the line that that seed from Eve comes from. And David writes this in Psalm 22. In verse 15, he writes, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of death. He, cl- he talks about extreme Thirst and dry mouth. In verse 17, he says, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me, meaning there's such excruciating pain that he sees that he can feel every single nerve ending in his bones or connected to his bones crying out. And in verse 18, he says, They divide my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. And he sees somehow in the future, one of his descendants, being in such pain that every single bone can be felt as it's stretched. And as that is happening, there is a group of people around that person casting lots for his apparel. He also writes in Psalm 22, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Talking about that same person. He also writes in Psalm 22 that whoever that person is, that the whole world will come to worship Yahweh because of him. Now 300 years later, we get the prophet Isaiah, around 700 B.C., and Isaiah writes chapter 53. And we see this in the words of Isaiah, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he has done violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when, he make, when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So Isaiah is writing of the same person in the future saying God will crush him and it pleases him to bruise him, just like the verbiage in Genesis 3, bruising him. But he's going to die for the sins. He's going to be punished for the iniquity. He's going to bear the iniquity of the people. But it also says in verse 10 that his days will be prolonged after he's been crushed and put to death. It's so amazing. It says in Isaiah 53, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And all of this was written 700 years before the events we're going to be reading tonight. What David wrote was written 1,000 years beforehand. And what Abraham went through was about 2,000 years before the events we are reading tonight. And as we're reading them, it's about 2,000 years from the event that has happened. And so what happens is Jesus goes on trial. The Jews have brought him before trial, before themselves. Then they brought him to Pilate to proclaim judgment. Judgment on Jesus. They want him crucified. Pilate says he doesn't see any guilt in him. They bring him to Herod, and now they're back at Pilate because Herod won't pronounce judgment on Jesus. So they bring Jesus back to Pilate, and that's where we pick up in chapter 19. It says, So then Pilate, Pontius Pilate, took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put him on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, king of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, You take him. And crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And Pilate refuses to find guilt in Jesus because there is none. But even with no guilt in Jesus, because of the uproar of the crowd and trying to keep the peace, he sends Jesus to get flogged. That's how chapter 19 starts. And if you don't know what the flogging of the Romans was, let me explain it. You would get whipped 39 times with a cat of nine tails, typically a leather whip, and at the end of the whip were tied into it things like bones or pieces of metal or glass to make sure that it would scrape the skin off of you and make sure, make sure it was extra painful as your skin opened up and poured out as the whip goes through. And Jesus has gone through that. And then they take a crown of thorns and they push it into his head. Now, just so you know what that looks like, I'll give you an idea. In this area of the world, there is a thorny wood called acacia wood. And the spikes can be like 10 to 15 inches long. And they're really sharp into a point. And they took that and they shoved it in Jesus' head making sure he was extra humiliated and had extra pain because they're so cruel. For your further edification, acacia wood happens to be the exact same thing that every instrument that was made for temple sacrifice and tabernacle sacrifice, every piece of wood that was used for the instruments of sacrifice was made out of acacia wood. So the Ark of the Covenant, the bottom, was made of acacia wood and plated in gold. The table of showbread that was inside the temple that looked a lot like a table of communion, which had 12 loaves of unleavened bread and wine on the table as you walked into the temple for sac- after sacrifice, that table was made out of acacia wood. The same wood that was shoved into Jesus' head as he goes to be the sacrifice for all of us. Pilate hears the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And he refuses. He says, I don't find any fault in him. But the Jews responded, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Well, If there was ever any question about what Jesus said about himself, it's gone. Jesus said, He's the son of God. They're accusing him of the claims Jesus has made. They're right about this claim. He did claim to be the son of God, which in the Jewish eyes, in their understanding, meant he's equal with God. He is God, is what he's claiming. And they call it blasphemy. And if you've blasphemed, the Levitical law says death is the punishment. Now, when Pilate heard that, heard that saying he was more afraid and he went again into the praetorium and said to jesus where are you from but jesus gave him no answer well interestingly in isaiah 53 it also says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and he did not open his mouth and as all of this is going on Jesus doesn't answer. And Pilate says to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Pilate makes a mistake that a lot of us make. He thinks he's the one in control. He thinks he's the one with the power, as if He's the one who gets to decide what goes on here. But Jesus corrects him quickly and he answers, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And so what he tells Pilate is, you have no control over what's going on here. I do. And he wants this to happen because he knows it's what needs to happen for the sin of mankind, to fulfill Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Genesis 22, and Genesis chapter 3. He knows he's the seed of Eve that's going to crush the serpent, and this is his opportunity to do it. He knows in the process he's going to get bruised. But he also says something interesting. He says, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, this is interesting because we often... Here, that all sin is equal in God's eyes, and there's no sin that's greater than the other, um, as if every sin is judged equally. But Jesus says to the contrary here. There are sins that have different levels of awfulness or or are more evil than others. Sin is still evil at any level, but Jesus is even saying that there's a degree of, of sin. So just to correct that theology a little bit. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Isn't this interesting? The Jews were waiting for the Messiah to show up because they couldn't wait for a political leader to come and overthrow the Roman government. They wanted freedom from the oppression of the Romans. But when the Messiah shows up, they can't wait to serve him up on a platter to death because he didn't meet their expectations. Instead, they actually put Caesar on a pedestal. And they threatened Pilate with not being enough allegiant enough to Pilate or to Caesar. So when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew gabatha. Now it was the preparation day of Passover, and about the 6th hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king and they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. The Messiah is staring them in the face. Jesus is right there. God in the flesh is standing before them. And they reject God. And say that their king is Caesar. In the last chapter, they chose to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. And if you were here last week, you know that the church, one of the church fathers, Irenaeus, tells us that the name of Barabbas is Jesus Barabbas, Jesus Bar Abba, which means Jesus, son of a father, meaning a guy, man. And Jesus is son of God the Father. He's God. And it's, do you choose God or do you choose man? And interestingly, in this chapter, the same parallel exists. As Jesus, God in the flesh, is there, they choose Caesar instead of Jesus. So he delivered him to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. Now, in in some of the other Gospels, you'll note that Pilate actually washes his hands and says that he he he's not taking he's not taking the guilt for this he's washing his hands of this he doesn't want any part of it he's handing over the decision to the crowd because he knows there's no guilt in jesus but nonetheless he gives them over what they want to do and he hands them jesus to be delivered to be crucified so they took jesus away in verse 17 it says And he, bearing his cross, went to a place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew, Golgotha. The same place that Isaac went to when Abraham was told to sacrifice him. Interestingly, Isaac carried the wood for his sacrifice as well. Jesus bears the brunt of the weight of the cross too. Verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified it was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, but he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, I do want to mention in this, just, uh, I'm pretty sure it's true. I haven't tested it, so check for yourselves. But there's a, a pastor who we miss dearly named Chuck Missler, who pointed out that, in the way that Pilate wrote the sign, that it would have created an acrostic that spelled Yahweh. So on the cross, where it was written in the original languages, uh, the king of the Jews, the way that he wrote it would have, like the beginning of each word, as you looked at it, would have spelled God's name. And as the Jews looked at that, That might have been why they were so offended because Jesus claimed to be God and Pilate was almost encouraging that very statement of Jesus by putting that on the sign. And so they wanted it to be changed so that it didn't reflect Jesus' statement. But Pilate responds with the most snark that Pilate has ever offered in sarcasm. And he says, what I have written, I have written. So the soldiers... When they had crucified Jesus, pay attention, they took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says in Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them, And for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. How do you get that detail a thousand years before it happens? Verse 25. Now, therefore, stood by the cross of the Jews his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So Mary cubed. Mary, Mary, and Mary were there. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And So now we see the intimate details of the crucifixion because this gospel is recorded by John. And John happens to be the disciple whom Jesus loved in John's words. John is the only one that we know for sure was there at the crucifixion. Interestingly, John is the only one who failed to die from torture. They tried to boil him in oil, uh, but failed. And so he got sent to the island of Patmos, and he actually died a natural death. He's the only one. He's also the only one at the crucifixion. After this, Jesus, knowing that all the things that were now accomplished, That the scripture might be fulfilled, said I thirst. Now that's interesting in Psalm twenty two, talked about his mouth being dry like a pot's herd. But David, through the lineage of him, he looks a thousand years into the future and even calls out the type of dry mouth and thirst that Jesus would experience on the cross a thousand years before it happens. So now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it in his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now the word in Greek there that's being used for it is finished is the word tetelestai. It's the same word that we've found in ancient Greek receipts. When a Payment was made in full. Like if a land deal was completely paid in full, they would use the word tetelestai to show that the owner no longer owed the borrower anything because he had paid the debt in full. That's the word Jesus uses on the cross. It is finished, tetelestai, paid in full. And upon saying that, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Just also following what Jesus said, that nobody takes his life, he gives it up of his own accord. And that's the moment he claims that it's over. He knows the debt has been paid and he gives up his spirit. What debt? The book of Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Therefore, the only payment that can be accepted by God for our sin is death. And death is eternal separation from God. The only payment God can take is death. And so, if we want to stand before God on our own two feet and tell him we think we can handle his judgment, and we stand before the throne of God on Judgment Day, if there's any sin in our account, the wage of that sin, the payment for that sin is death, ours. But, in this moment, the gospel is preached. Because Jesus said, paid in full. Meaning, you don't have to stand before God on your own because Jesus was willing to pay the debt for you. The cross represents death, a payment that can be made for your sin. And so you can stand before God and say, Yeah, I know I'm sinful, but my sin has been paid for by the cross, by Jesus. He said, Paid in full. And so now you can judge me based on Jesus' righteousness rather than my own, because I've accepted the payment for my sin that Jesus paid, rather than trying to pay my own debt to you, God. And so the whole gospel is preached in one Greek word, to tell us die. And therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. So because they had to bury the people before sundown so that they don't break the the Jewish laws of Passover, they asked for the legs to be broken so they can take the bodies down and prepare them. So the first two, the people on either side of Jesus, their legs are broken. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now that is a direct medical indication that he was absolutely dead by asphyxiation. In verse 35, it says, He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you may know, or you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken, and they, and again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might Take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. But Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a wealthy Jewish man. Again, what it said in Isaiah 53, that his grave would be with the wicked, that he would die with sinners. Jesus died between two criminals, but he would be buried with the rich. And Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body and buried it in one of his tombs. So Jesus died with the sinners, but was buried by the rich man. That was written 700 years before this event. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices and the custom of the Jews is to bury Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb to which no one had yet been laid. So they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. And so it ends the chapter. The disciples, terrified. Their their master, their, their rabbi, is dead. What's coming is really bright. But for this moment, in their perspective, this was dark. But we have the benefit of history, and we know the whole story. And so we can look back on what happened here and know that the wingspan has covered the windshield, and it has slammed right in front of us, and we can't miss it. The seed from Eve... Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, meaning a descendant of Abraham. He's from the lineage of David, from the Messianic line. His hands and feet were pierced, just like Psalm 22 said. He was beaten and flogged, just like Isaiah 53 said. And he was crucified on the place where God stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. And that place, which Abraham called God will provide because he was waiting for the lamb, finally had its moment. Because as John the Baptist called out when he saw Jesus by the Jordan River, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the lamb has finally been sacrificed on the spot where God said he would provide. And he happened to be crucified on Passover. The Jewish high holiday that represents a moment in Egypt where the angel of death was coming. But because lamb's blood was painted outside their door frames, death passed over them and they received life instead. On that same day, Jesus is crucified. And his last words on the cross are paid in full. The debt, the wages of sin is paid. And it's paid for you and for me. And now the choice is ours. When we stand before God in judgment, how do we want to pay that debt? Do we think we've done good enough to stand before God in all of his perfection and righteousness and claim that we deserve to get in? Or will sin be on our account in the wage for that to be separation from Him, or will we be able to say, Jesus said, "Paid in full, He paid for my account." Don't judge me; I know I'm sinful, but my debt's been paid. Judge me according to Jesus's righteousness, and you get in. The gospel, in a word, tell us, die The offer and the gift is laid out there for you, paid in full. The story has been told for thousands of years, pointing to this moment so that we wouldn't miss it when it comes crashing into us. And the picture couldn't be more clear. A man whose hands and feet were pierced, whose bones were stretched out to the point of pain, whose mouth was dried up from asphyxiation and thirsty, whose blood has been poured out and he's been flogged. And because of that man, the whole world has heard about Yahweh, just like was predicted by David in Psalm 22. And that man offered payment for your sin and mine, paid in full. All he asks is for you to repent from sinful life and turn your heart towards him, and he'll give you the spirit to live in the power of the Spirit, To lead you to be more and more Christ like. And so that on Judgment Day, you can stand before God and say, No, my debt was paid. The gospel. This is the day. This is the apex of history. And Scripture has been screaming for thousands of years, pointing to this event. And when it is recorded, God is asking us not to miss it. Because if we miss it or we reject it, the alternative is to be separated from him when he's trying to reconcile a relationship with him. So the choice is yours and we leave it to you. Who will pay your debt? You or Jesus? It's a free gift to you. But that grace cost everything. That moment was not cheap. It might be free to us, but the cost of grace is the flogging with the cat of nine tails and an excruciating death. That God who put on human flesh for us provided us that way out. And he was willing to take on all of that pain for you and for me. Don't reject it. Don't walk away from it. Understand it and turn towards it. And understand, he wants your debt to be paid. So please make the right choice. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. I don't know if there's any other words to say, but thank you. You you drew the picture for us. You asked us to see it. And then as you painted it so clearly on the cross, help us to make sure we don't miss it that we remember it and that we live because of it. Help us to not turn away from the cross, but turn to the cross to leave our burdens, our sin, and an old way of life that's consumed with self there at the foot of the cross. And help us turn to you to worship you in your story because there is nothing worth worshiping more than you. You not only created us. You not only saw us in our rebellion, but you took action and gave us a way out. You gave us a way out from our failure. As we took and bore your image that you created us in, and we stained that image with sin, you gave us a way to clean that stain through the cross. Help us meet you there in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming and hearing all of that and joining us. And I don't know that there's a more important message than this one. The cross. It's our entire faith points to it. Our entire future of eternity rests on it. It's the thing we can't miss. And so, if you're listening and you are here, if you need to make a commitment, we'll be up here. Pray with us after the service. If you're someone who's listening to the recording and you feel like you've lost or gone astray or you've never heard it before and you need the cross, go to Jesus. It is the most important thing in human history. It reconciled us to the creator of the universe. Don't miss it. And come back next week for the rest of the story.